The Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, um, the verses 8 to 16. By faith, I gotta put my other glasses on. You understand. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and as he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he, is, he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. And our uh, text for this morning is uh, Genesis chapter 18, starting at uh, verse 1. I invite you, uh, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. I'll read these words for us. They'll also be uh, displayed up on the screen behind me. And we're picking up this morning again on the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and we'll just begin and uh, walk through this together. Genesis 18, starting at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. He saw them and hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to get Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd 
and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and calf and the calf that had been prepared and set these before him. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm too old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, yet your word endures forever. And so by your spirit, will you open your word and speak to us the words which you wish us to hear this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson writes about the Christian life. He says, the Christian life is about a willingness to let God work in his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans we demand God to put into effect. He says, the Christian life is like saying, my life is, lies before you, God. Uh, I now wait and watch to the morning. I now wait and watch to the morning. One of the beautiful things about walking through the story of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis as we have been the last, back in, back in June or early July and now are picking up again for the next three weeks, is to see how God is at work in the everyday lives of Abraham and Sarah. And we get to see them not in just one snapshot of their living uh, and their trust in God, but we get to see them when they're young when they're uh, middle-aged, if you're middle-aged, don't put your hand up. And when they're older, if you think you're older, don't put your hand up either. But we get to see Abraham and Sarah through this whole cycle of life, from younger to middle of their life to older as well. We get to see them when they feel strong and when they feel weak. We get to see them when they're doubting and when they're full of faith. We get to see them when they're up and when they're down. We get to see them when they're faltering and trying to stumble forward, and we see them when they're kind of in full stride. And what we see from Abraham and Sarah in, in all of the stories in Genesis over the whole period of their life is that they come to understand that God is faithful, that God is the one they can trust, and that God is at work in their lives. And the whole story of Abraham and Sarah, we see the work of God embodied and made known in the promises that God makes to them, starting in Genesis 12, and goes all the way to the end of their saga. And the title of this series, remember, is just that, Promises Made and Promises Kept. Well, as we look through this chapter, or the half of this chapter this morning, I'd like us to walk through uh, just three sections, uh, three points. The first is Jesus shows the priority of serving that gives us meaning. Second, Jesus brings the intimacy with God we all long for. And thirdly, Jesus is the center of God's promises, uh, per promises for our 
lives. So this story begins really in the everyday in, very, in verse 1. It's the most everyday possible story you can imagine. Chapter 18, verse 1, we see Abraham out there in the heat of the day under the great trees of Mamre, probably oak trees. Remember these trees have uh, played into the story already, but here they are now settled by the great oak trees of Mamre. Their tents are up, and Abraham is sitting there in the very middle of the day, um, we were camping a little while ago, and I myself was sitting in the heat of the middle of the day, and it can be kind of boring, can it, if you're sitting in the middle of the day? It's kind of warm outside. Uh, we went, set up all the tents and tarps. We had the most incredible campsite of anyone else in the whole campground. Tarps and ropes and strings everywhere, uh, all planned, of course, well in advance. But we, I was sitting there in the middle of the day and thinking, man, this is just it's hot, and I got the whole day ahead of got the whole day ahead of us here. Uh, this is just kind of an average kind of day. And here's Abraham sitting in the heat of the middle of the day by his tent, and uh, he's maybe having a siesta. I don't know. Uh, and he rubs the sleep off his eyes, and he sees out of the ordinary, out of the, out of the regular, out of a day like any other, the Lord appearing to him, uh, to Abraham by these trees. The Lord appearing is the appearance that I take as um, the pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a similar kind of situation to the fourth man in the story with Daniel in the lion's den, put in the fiery furnace as a fourth man, behold, a fourth man stands with. Here I take the Lord Jesus Christ to be present with Abraham. And we see later there's two angels as well present. And in verse 10, he's called the Lord again. But the Lord appears to Abraham right here in the middle of a regular kind of ordinary day. And we'll see the promises of God unfold for him and the purposes of God unfold for him in Sarah. The first thing we see in verse 2 all the way to verse uh, 5 is that Jesus shows the priority of serving that gives us meaning. So what's happening here? Abraham looks up and he sees three men standing there, perhaps the Lord and two angels. And he saw them and he hurries off from the entrance of his tent to meet them as one would offer some kind of hospitality in the ancient Near East. And he says, uh, if I found favor, will you let me bring you water? Will you let me serve you? Create a meal for you? Will you let me refresh you, wash your feet? Will you let me offer hospitality to you? Will you let me offer you some rest? And that word rest is kind of strange. If this indeed is a divine visitation of the Lord, uh, what's happening? Does the Lord need rest? Is that what we're learning here? Is the Bible saying that God is somehow weak or incapable of sustaining strength? No, the Bible's not saying that at all. We know the whole witness of the Bible is that the, the Lord God is the almighty God. But we see this image of the, uh, of the Lord allowing Abraham to offer him rest, allowing Abraham to offer him hospitality. And remember in Luke chapter 16, you have the uh, story, the parable of Lazarus. Uh, remember that story in, in Luke 16? Uh, and in the end, we have uh, Abraham serving in heaven, offering uh, Lazarus the help he needs, the rest he needs. And Abraham plays this heavenly role of rest giver in Luke chapter 16. God doesn't need rest, but the Lord gives Abraham this opportunity to serve him, to welcome him, to offer hospitality to him. And what we see Abraham doing in verse 5, now that you've come to your servant, he's calling himself a servant. 
what we see Abraham doing by faith is getting something right into the center of his life that the Bible, all the way through, and the teachings of Jesus call extremely important and central to living the Christian life. That is, serving those who are in need. We're called to serve those who are set before us by God. It is a radical kind of nature to Christianity that we are not first to be an inward people, but an outward people serving those around us in need. Abraham, by faith, shows us what it means to have a hospitable place, and Sarah as well, and a hospitable heart, how he welcomes them and spreads out before them, and we'll see more in a minute how he does that. But right here at the center, we see this, this principle that that Abraham and Sarah are going to serve. That by faith, this principle has come to the middle of their life, that whatever I do, we hear in 1 Corinthians, whether in word or in deed, I'll do it all for the glory of God. My, my job choices, my work choices, my, my choices in my household and in my everyday life will have a priority in them that is around serving others. How important is this principle that we see Abraham uh, demonstrating, the Lord allowing him to demonstrate in these opening verses, the priority of serving. Well, it's really important in the sense that if we, if we don't get it, we're, we're, we're not going to have a meaningful life. If serving others and looking to the person outside us and loving our neighbor first is not part of our lives, we'll become more and more inward, more and more self-centered, more and more caving this way, how important is it? Well, Jesus, we see in Matthew, talks about a parable of the end of time. And what does he say is going to happen at the end of time? How is it that we are going to be judged by God or our lives evaluated by the living God at the end of time? Does Jesus teach in that parable about doing to the very least of these that you did to me? Our lives in that parable, Jesus said, will be judged a lot more by how central serving others has been than even what we say, or even, dare I say, how correct our theology is. Abraham serves the Lord and serves these two visitors he opens his heart to them and Sarah and his life to them. And in so doing, models in a way and points to us in a way uh, the very fact of who Jesus Christ is. The one who leaves heaven. The one who takes on the very form of a servant, a slave. Uh, in obedience to his father the one who is directed not by his own needs or desires first, but has surrendered himself to his Father and takes on servanthood for us and for the whole world. So it's a challenging point, the very first point in this story, I think, because it asks us, where is the place of serving in my life? Is me serving someone else because they are in need, and for that reason alone, part of my life? Or is it not? 
Well, the second point we see in this story is that Jesus brings the intimacy with God that we all long for. Jesus brings the intimacy with God that we all long for. And we see this uh, from verse 6 all the way to uh, verse 8. And this story kind of progresses, and we see uh, Abraham hurries around the tent and says to Sarah, quick, uh, get all these things ready. And he goes out to the fields, and there's this generosity uh, that happens here in the story, an abundant In fact, Abraham could not have been more generous in getting this meal together with Sarah. He gets three seahs of the finest flour. How much is that? That's six gallons. When's the last time you baked six gallons of, of bread? That's a lot of bread. Think about that. It's a lot. I ran out and got a calf, a choice tender calf, one that had been waiting. This generosity of Abraham could not have been more abundant, more strong. And he, and he runs around like uh, he's an older man now in his life, but he hurries around. He runs this way and he runs that way. That Hebrew word for hurry is repeated throughout these verses. And he sets, having hurried around and offering this hospitality, what does he do? He sets, it says at the end of verse 8, all these things before them. And while they ate, uh, he stood near them under a tree. Can you picture this with me? One of the oaks of Mamre with a, a table set under it with the divine visitors there, the three, the Lord and two angels. And it's set by the food that Abraham puts on there and Sarah. And Abraham, however, stands near them. I want us to see if we could for a moment here that Abraham is not at the table with the Lord and the angels. There's a, there's a distance between the table that is set and Abraham and Sarah. They're not sitting at this table, at this meal, at this fellowship meal. There's a, a distance there. And I think what this picture shows us is that while they're is a distance between the Lord and Abraham and Sarah in this story. That through the work of Christ, there is no longer a distance for all those who believe in uh, God and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this story, it's kind of a table for the Lord by the oaks of Mamre. But in Jesus Christ and by his, his work for us, it becomes the table of the Lord, doesn't it? In, in the older times, you had uh, the Levitical priests approaching the table for us in that, in that place of, uh, of eating together. In the work of Jesus, he himself invites us to the table with him. We, we, see, we see a difference here in what's happening. We see the, the work of Jesus being foreshadowed that this meal will become this covenantal meal. Do you realize that most meals in the Old Testament, when the Lord is at the meal, uh, picture the meal, it's not a meal, but picture, I don't know, there was ox on the, the Elijah with, the, with the, the prophets of Baal, and also Gideon had a, a meal out in Judges chapter 6 and verse 21. Most meals in, in the Old Testament with the Lord present, what happens? Is it intimate? Is there relation? No, fire comes down from heaven and kind of burns up the, the whole thing. So th this kind of meal uh, is pointing us to the, the work of Christ. There's a quote from, uh, that I'll share with you on the screen, I think. One theologian says, it's what begins as a table for the Lord alone, prepared by a man who remains at a distance, 
ends as the son's table prepared by his sacrifice to which all Christians are invited to come near. Can you picture for a moment sitting as we do because of the work of Jesus Christ at a table with God? One of the most intimate things we can do in our whole lives is eat with someone, sit down with them across from the table, look into their eyes, have a conversation with them. Can you imagine sitting face to face with the living God, looking into the eyes of the Lord who, who flung the stars into space, who, who made the oceans, who, 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 who caused all of creation to come into being and all of that, who, who knows your heart better than you know your own heart, who, who knows your life intimately, who, who loves you deeper than you can ever imagine, who, who wants the best for you even if you don't know what is best for your own life? Can you imagine sitting face to face with this Lord, this intimacy? Andrew, Barnard, Andrew Bonar, a, a theologian from the 19th century, says this, said this to his congregation one Sunday. Jesus is walking today among the golden candlesticks, and he will stop there at our communion table to see if any of you want anything from him. Do any of you want anything from Jesus? Do any of you need anything from Jesus? Can you see in this picture from Abraham and Sarah a Lord Jesus Christ who eagerly desires to eat the Passover with you? who wants to feast with you, who, who loves you. Do you have a sense of intimacy in your own life when it comes to your love for the Lord and the Lord's love for you? Or at heart, do we have an unbiblical picture of God who is usually distant and maybe a little bit angry? Or can we say with the, the hymn writer, they who trust him wholly, find him wholly true? Have you found yourself in that place in your life, wherever you may be in your spiritual journey, of having intimacy with the living God? I don't know who said this quote, but I wrote it down in the notes, so I'll, I'll read it. Uh, to, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him is the greatest adventure. To find him is the greatest achievement. Look, in all the things that we have in our lives that are important and that are good, do we take time to allow the grace of Christ to really soak into our lives, a grace that will expose all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, all of our regrets, but a grace that will also cover those with the work of the cross. Lord, I'm so broken. Lord, I'm so sinful. But yet I thank you for your grace and love in my life. Well, the final point that we see in this story is that Jesus is the center of God's promises 
for our lives. And this goes to the end chapter. This goes really from verse, we'll say verse 9 all the way to the end. Now, the first thing is about serving, the priority of serving. The second is about intimacy. And the third is Jesus is the center of God's promise for our lives. So we have this table fellowship, and then what happens? The, uh, the Lord asks, where's your wife Sarah? They, they ask him. They're in the tent. And um, then we get this, all of a sudden, this, this sort of bomb drops. And they say to him, uh, one of them said, surely I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. What, what is this? Well, this is the, the retelling, this is the reaffirmation of the promise on which Abraham and Sarah based their life back in Genesis 12 when they, they left their homeland and left their culture and left their place. It's the promise that had been kind of bouncing around their lives and depending on how they were doing, had been forgotten, remembered, had been depended on, not depended on over the whole kind of course of their life. And here, one of the angels lays back into their life in the everyday, the very purpose of their visit, the word of the Lord comes to them. Uh, as one theologian says, the angels, I will return again with life attending me. And he speaks into their life this promise again that, 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 that God will use them to be a blessing to generations after them, that that people will come to know the one true God through them, that they will, they will be blessed in order to be a blessing. And up to this point in their life, it's been like, Lord, well, we have no other generations coming, no, no, no son, no heir before us, so this promise is dead. Lord, you're probably like, what's your timing here? Uh, can I, we really trust you? Uh, but the promise just comes back in these verses a year from now, your wife, Sarah, will have a son. And the promise is reintroduced into the very center of their life in this everyday kind of situation in which they find themselves. And we see this famous response by Sarah. And uh, before we get even too far into her response, um, you know, she laughs Remember uh, that, you know, we, we're not here to, to beat up on anybody in this passage. People in the Bible who maybe do things that we, we say, hey, hold on, they shouldn't be laughing at God. Well, for the most part, those things are talking about us too, aren't they? So we see ourselves in many ways in this response. So what is the response of Sarah? Well, Sarah's listening here in the tent, and uh, behind them, and Abraham and Sarah are very, are, are, are very old. She, we hear what Sarah's thinking. They're very old. She's unable to have children. Abraham's unable to have children with her. And so she laughs to herself in uh, hearing what the angels have said. I am worn out, and my Lord is old. How will I now have this pleasure? And let's just remember that not all laughter is, is bad, is it? In fact, um, Laughter, for the most part, is good, uh, and and we know from even reading, you know, scientists will even tell us that then when we laugh, good things happen, right? Like uh, one study you can look up is that when you laugh, your your blood pressure goes down. So laughing is a good thing. Laughter is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, uh, as one th as one uh, who was it? One comedian said, you know. I love laughing except when milk comes through my nose, you know. Um, laughter is a good part of your life. It ought to be there. It, there's good medicinal 
properties of God giving us laughter. But what's happening here with this laughter in Abraham and Sarah's tent? Well, it's a laughter that's centered around verse 14 when it says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And it's kind of like Sarah is laughing in the face of God making this promise and then, and then her laughing at the possibility of it coming true. And, and, and it's true that she kind of feels guilty about this and that she says she lies afterwards, no, I didn't laugh. And so there's a sense here, this is kind of a negative laugh that Sarah gives. It's a, it's a laugh that you and I have given, I'm sure, many times in our lives. It, it's a laughter in a way that um, this promise that's been given kind of outdistances her ability and our ability at times to believe it. it, it it's, it's a laughter of unbelief, really, at, at core, isn't it? It's a laughter that, um, on the one hand, you have the eternal God who is able to do all things, who is the most high one, for whom nothing is impossible. Is anything too hard for you? Is anything too incredible for you, Lord? No, nothing is. And on the other hand, you have a human being as frail as you and I are, uh, coming face to face with the radicalness of that promise and finding herself in a place of of unbelief, that it's not possible to happen. What God says will happen. And the angel at the end says, yes, you did laugh. Well, we don't have too long. I want to make a couple of points at the end. And we're going to come back to Sarah in a minute. What do we learn about our lives? How can we apply this whole story to our lives. Well, the first application I want to offer us this morning is, and I started with this, is that can we remember that our God is the God who works over our lives in the long term? Yeah, we can open the Bible and we can pray one morning and we can, you know, hear the Lord say something to us. We can be in worship and hear the Lord speak to us in one occasion. But I want us to remember that this story shows us that God is the one who works on our lives and on us over the long term as well. We serve a long-term God. And in that book that I quoted at the beginning called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, I want to share this quote with you about God working over the long term in our lives. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. And there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Yeah, you know that God is at work in your life and my life to produce holiness. Probably a lot more work to do in my life than many of your lives to bring holiness, but... God is at work to bring holiness in our lives over the long term. All of those things we think need to change in our lives, all the questions we have, um, don't get too worried about your everyday growth. Will you take a moment in this story and ask and believe and look, how, how has God been at work in my life over the last 10 years? 
what does God want to do in my life over the next 10 years, my family's life, my church's life over the next 10 years? I mean, whatever the long-term thing is on your mind. And allow yourself to um, live in that long apprenticeship as Abraham and Sarah find as well. Secondly, just to end, I want us to see in this story Sarah, who, who laughs and we laugh with her, if we're honest, uh, in unbelief at times. Uh, I want us to see Sarah as, in the whole story, as a poster child for God's grace and goodness and love. Uh, in Genesis 21, a few chapters later, what do we read about Sarah? What was Sarah? She says, God has, has made laughter for me, and God has made others to laugh with me. That is, that God has, has, has given her, this, this son has come, and, and this promise has been fulfilled in her life. Uh, Sarah is not relegated to, uh, you know, the, or Abraham to the, to the sands of history because there was this laugh in their tent uh, that, that, that many of us would have done as well, I'm sure. No. She, she makes it into the Hall of Fame in Hebrews. And Genesis 21, we, we see the Lord at work in her life. God is the one who is a friend of sinners. Each one of us are, are captive to sin and doubt and death. Each one of us battle, you know, our own demons and, and battle the own, our own things in our lives that we struggle with in terms of sin. But God is the one who specializes in healing the broken, in bringing, by His Spirit, a regenerate life, the regeneration of the Spirit. He is the one whose grace prevails, whose grace continues, whose, whose goodness is stronger, who, who doesn't repay Eve, uh, according to the way that we deserve. And so we see Sarah and God's work in her life especially as a poster child of God's goodness and grace. And I hope and pray you'll see yourself there as well. And finally, just by way of application, uh, if we could just talk for a minute about laughter. About laughter. What is the place of... Uh, Laughter in your life. Or put it this way, uh, what does your laughter or your lack of laughter <laughs> say about you? What do we learn about laughter in this whole story and in the Bible itself? It's an interesting topic. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Screwtape Letters, there's a, there, there's a demon talking about laughter. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but what the real cause of it is, we don't know. <laughs> Something like laughter, the demon says, is expressed in much of that detestable art, which humans call music, and something like it occurs in heaven. <laughs> but the phenomenon is of itself disgusting, says the demon, and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. Oh, it is up there. Good. Laughter comes into the Psalms. If we were to turn to Psalm 126, we see something of the work of the Lord. When the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. 
Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue, tongues with songs of joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the edge of. Those who sow in tears will reap in songs of, of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves, that is, abundance, with him. Is there a sense that sadness is a stronger word in your life than joy? Is there a sense that maybe disappointment or grumbling is a stronger word in your life than laughter? You know, this story challenges us, I think, and reminds us that nothing is too hard for God. That he is the one who is able to do all things in all times and all places, whether you're young, middle-aged, or old. That he, through Jesus Christ, is working out his promises always in your life and in my life and wills good for you and for me and for your loved ones. Is there laughter in your life? Is there good laughter in your life? If there isn't, is that saying something to you about how big God is in your own thinking or how small. Put it this way. I think as Christians, we're meant to be comforted. We're meant to be encouraged in this, that for all those who believe, and the last word in this passage is, Yes, you did laugh. The last word is laugh. But I think as Christians, we're meant to be encouraged because of the work of Christ that for all those who believe, in the end, everything will finish in laughter. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do confess that at times we don't share the joy of heaven because our eyes are so taken with some of the trials of earth. Lord, will you renew in us this morning a deep faith given by your Spirit and affirmed by your Word that we indeed may be a people of joy, faith, of trust, in the way of Abraham and Sarah, in the way of Jesus Christ. We just wish to entrust everything in our lives this morning to you, Lord, into your care. Um, and we thank you that in, in the very end, you'll make all things well. And so we trust you and we thank you for all your promises. Amen.